welcome to the Ray Harryhausen Podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. So it's um, Happy New Year to everyone who's uh, who's listening to us in the, uh, the the beginning of the year. So I think this is going to be February or so when this goes out. Um, we've got a catch-up episode now. We're going to be telling you about some of the things happening for us and the foundation in 2017. And some of the things that uh, perhaps you can get involved with as well as fans of Ray Harryhausen. So I'm joined today by uh, our collections manager, Connor Heaney. Hello, Connor. Hi, John. Um, very excited to be back after a short winter break from podcasting. We've got a lot to talk about in this episode. Yes, we have indeed. You've got a very special guest with you in the Foundation's deep, deep underground James Bond-style archive. You have Mr. Alan Friswell, our official conservator and restorer. Hello, Alan. Hello, John. How are you? Good, good. I always like to over-egg the pudding. <laughs> <laughs> As, as you can tell. So um, very excited to have you back with us, Alan, because we're going to speak to you about some specific models you're working on. And also later in the episode, we want to get your thoughts on two of the anniversary films, which uh, which are coming up this year. Um, so I'll kick off just with the uh, the first point we wanted to make to, to listeners. Last year, we attended the Annie Fest at uh, Canterbury University, held by Dr. Chris Pallant. And it's an annual animation festival where the good and the great come to Canterbury to talk about animations past present and future we gave a talk there called Ray Harryhausen and me and interestingly that talk is now available online through the Anifest 2016 website or if you already subscribe to us on Facebook and Twitter you can find the links there so the talk that we give followed by an interesting sort of Q&A session it's always good to uh, to test the water with the public isn't it Connor? Yes, absolutely, and uh, the Q and A sessions I think are are incredibly interesting because the variety of questions from fans is is always very fascinating and different every time. So you will have everything from fans who've seen the film a million times through to people who are just finding out about Ray Harryhausen for the first time. Um, so your Q and A at the Canterbury Anna Fest just has some very interesting questions there. An interesting question about Tim Burton and Johnny Depp. Yes, let's have a listen to that. You know, Ray would be thrilled to see stop motion coming back. And when Tim Burson used to come to London regularly, um, he'd stop in at Ray's house and show Ray what he was doing with The Nightmare Before Christmas or James and the Giant Peach. And when he did Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he brought Johnny Depp with him to the house. And Ray's daughter, Vanessa Harryhausen, said, Oh, Daddy, Daddy, why didn't you tell me that you had Johnny Depp in there? I don't know who that was, he said. And uh, he knew who Tim Burton was. He thought Johnny Depp was Tim Burton's assistant. <laughs> Only because Ray wasn't up with the, uh, the stars of the day. But um, Johnny Depp just sat there quietly listening to Ray and Tim chatting about stop motion. And of course, Mars Attacks was an homage to Ray's Earth vs. Flying Saucers. It's always good to get a laugh from an audience. It makes, it makes, you, um, makes you aware that they're actually awake and, and that they're with you as well. Um, that brings us on nicely, Connor, to um, something else with audience interaction. We're, we're celebrating this year, aren't we, two special Ray Harryhausen anniversaries. And you're going to tell us in a moment how people can get involved. So this year it's the 60th anniversary of 20 million miles to Earth. And the 40th, only a baby, the 40th anniversary for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Now normally we ask people to send us questions for our special anniversary episodes via Facebook and Twitter and email. But Connor, you've got a bit, a bit of a, a new way of, uh, of the fandom attaching to us and, and contacting us. That's right. Uh, throughout the last week, we have been receiving audio recordings from fans of both of these films. And uh, it's, it's very interesting to hear people's take on it. So rather than us just reading your question out, you can now send us 
a recording of your question or your thoughts or whatever you want to say about 20 million miles to earth or Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. And we have a few to play today um, that people have very kindly sent in, fans from around the world. These eyes peer out through time, through space, to a land beyond imagination. So, as John said, we're going to hear from Ray Harryhausen fans around the world about their memories of 20 million miles to Earth and Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Now, our first recording is from Joey Vento in New York. Now, Joey has a particular unique claim to fame as a Ray Harryhausen fan because his father, Sonny, was actually an extra on Ray's first solo project, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Sonny Vento was working as a longshoreman in the harbour in New York and was chosen as an extra on the scenes where the Redosaurus is running amok. So without any further ado, let's hear from Joey. The rocket, with its complement of 17 men, had landed on the planet Venus. Hi everybody, it's Joey Vento and Diane and Jess and Dad and greetings from frozen New York City. Uh, we're here to talk a little bit about some memories that we have of about 20 million miles to Earth, uh, very near and dear to us. Um, I first remember seeing it on Creature Features in the late 1960s, like 1969, 1970. And I used to sit with Dad, and he loved it because it said it reminded him of his hometown in Italy, in Messina. So my little mind thinking for years I thought dad's town used to have a monster running around in it. Uh, I remember it being the very first film that I ever really felt sad watching. Uh, to have such a unique alien creature seem so helpless and frightened when most films in the 50s were portraying them as nuclear horrors. I found this to be very intriguing and my eyes still well up today. Every time I see the poor Emir hanging for dear life from the ancient Colosseum in Rome, I will never stop thinking that I need to keep an extra bag of sulfur in the cellar just for that reason, and just in case. <laughs> like the beast from 20,000 Fathoms in King Kong, 20 million miles to Earth filled the rest of my life with wonder and magic, and I love it so much. And we want to thank you all for the opportunity to uh, recollect some of our uh, memories. So cheers, everybody. Uh, from me, Dad, Jess, and Diane, and we'll see you soon. Venus. The planet Venus. Next up, we have Robin Bales. Now, Robin runs a YouTube channel called Dark Corners. Now, this is a very comedic and entertaining YouTube channel, which looks back at some less classic, shall we say, B-movies and monster films from the past. However, as well as celebrating these films, Robin is a huge fan of Ray Harryhausen and he has a particular affection for the Eye of the Tiger. Let's hear what he had to say. Journey across the oceans of antiquity to the northern edge of the ancient world. Objectively, I think most people would agree that Jason and the Argonauts is Ray Harryhausen's best film and The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad with the incredibly iconic Cyclops is the best Sinbad one. But... Eye of the Tiger is, I think, the one for which I have the most affection. When I was a kid, I used to watch a copy that was taped off TV every Sunday morning. I think I still have the tape somewhere. I think what appealed to me most about that film was the world it created. Uh, a world where the magic of Zenobia and the science of Melanthius can exist side by side and actually share a lot in common. Uh, a world where a giant walrus wasn't a shock, it was just another day at the office. I like that no one really despairs when Cassim is turned into a baboon. It's a problem to be solved. Just, OK, this has happened. What are we going to do about it? This is the world they live in, a world where this sort of thing happens. And you don't solve it by panicking. You go on an adventure with beautiful women in Patrick Troughton. And that really appealed to me. And I guess when I was a kid, it seemed very achievable. Sinbad is, is nominally a trader, but he's basically a professional adventurer. We never see him trading, certainly. Within minutes of his arrival, he's attacked by the sort of extraordinary skinless demons, which are just some of the most imaginative Harryhausen creations. 
And again, this is apparently just another day in retail. Uh, now I'm older, I also appreciate the fact that Sinbad isn't rescuing a princess in this film. He's rescuing a prince, which is actually quite unusual in the genre. And I'm not sure it gets all the credit it deserves for that. But above all, it's Trog. I love Trog. If I'm honest, probably more than I love the human characters. Uh, and I do think he's a character. He has a personality and this is a performance. Uh, when listing the talents of Ray Harryhausen, I think you do have to include actor, even if he's acting by proxy, as it were. And I think Trog is a standout performance. You'd have to be made of stone for Trog's death not to affect you. Uh, it comes back to the world, really. I, I liked the idea. I still like the idea that there are trogs out there waiting to be rediscovered. It is literally a wonderful world, a world that is full of wonder. And that's going to captivate you no matter how old you are. As Sinbad battles with both human... From the depths of the earth, I command you, arise! ...and supernatural evil. We also received a message from Angus Lamont, who is a Ray Harryhausen fan from Scotland, and who is an animator in his own right. Angus was kind enough to send us some images from his diorama and his college project in stop-motion animation, and it was a recreation of the barbecue scene from The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, the scene where the Cyclops roasts the sailors. So let's hear some of Angus's memories now. Some of you may also have heard the story of a monster now confined here in Rome Zoo. Hi guys, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, two great films. Uh, 20 Million Miles to Earth is one of my favourites. I remember seeing it when I was about 8 or 9 on a holiday. Uh, fantastic looking creature in that. The Emir's just such a unique looking character, for especially for that period uh, in the 1950s. It worked, basically every monster in the 1950s was either a guy in a suit or a hand puppet, but this was something really special. The colourised version as well uh, looks fantastic, I think. Uh, did a great job on that. Um, Sinbad and I the Tigers, another one I saw when I was quite young. Uh, it was on television. The Minotaur, I think, is fantastic. That's probably my favourite, one of my favourite... Uh, you know, characters in the film. Uh, I remember seeing it in Edinburgh, I think, uh, in 2008, uh, when I was quite young. Uh, and I think it was the standing model they had on display, but even still, just seeing that in person was was mind-blowing. Great cast in that as well. Uh, Patrick Wayne, John Wayne's son, who also appeared in, was it People at Time Forgot, which is another fantasy film. Uh, not so good, but... Uh, and Patrick Troughton of Doctor Who fame, it's good to see him in it as well. Uh, but two great films and I can't recommend them enough uh, if you haven't seen them. So thanks for having me again and I look forward to future updates from the Foundation and uh, all the best. So thanks again. That beast is from Venus. We also heard from Mike Tharm. Some of you may remember that Mike was the winner of our Harryhausen 100 logo competition and he's a huge and passionate Ray Harryhausen fan. Destroy them! Sinbad! I absolutely love Sinbad Eye of the Tiger. It's one of the few films from my youth that I can honestly say that I never get bored of watching. There's just something so magical about it, and I don't know whether it's down to the score by Roy Budd, or whether it's the uh, the cast in the way they're being directed, or even if it is just solely because of the creatures that Ray had animated for the film. But there's just something so memorable for it, and always gives me a, a smile in my face, and a lump in my throat, especially when... Uh, when we get introduced to Trog quite later on in the film and for me you make that emotional connection to him almost instantly and then to see him battle to the death with a saber-toothed tiger and seeing that panic in his eyes and picking up the golden spear and flailing it around trying to get the upper hand again knowing that he's probably losing the fight is always uh, quite an emotional scene for me um, and it, it's it's there's just something about that film altogether that, that always uh, sticks quite on, in a positive way in my mind 
and uh, and I really do hope that there's going to be more generations to come that are going to have that same sort of enthusiasm when they see this film and hopefully that will also inspire them to do great films as well. 20 million miles to earth was a different matter for me though um, I didn't start watching this until about 2003 uh, when I first started university and at that time I was already going through a, a mental change in, in just watching a Ray film for entertainment values to watching a Ray film to understand its technical views um, and at the time I remember coming away from this thinking it was a seriously impressive film for, for the 1950s um, you know the sequence where the the emu is hatching from the the jelly egg it was quite innovative and it was very interesting to see you know this this tiny little thing erupting from from something that's so fragile and i even complimented ray on this when i went to visit him in 2012 and he, although he couldn't remember at the time how he did the technique um he was quite modest about it and he was quite pleased that it came across um, so well uh, to to fans and to audiences that have viewed it um, and I also find it's uh, quite an emotional film as well to watch um, especially seeing as effectively what the human characters are doing are effectively torturing this creature who wants nothing more than just to be left alone and go home to his own kind from producers Charles H. Schneer and Ray Harryhausen <coughs> come face to face with the prehistoric trog and finally, something a little different and quite special. Uh, next up, you're going to hear Rain Great Banks and her four-year-old son, Daniel Great Banks, probably one of our youngest listeners and one of our youngest Ray Harryhausen fans. Um, the messages we received from Rain and Daniel are really quite wonderful. Uh, they're going to tell you how much Daniel loves Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, the DVD of which she received for Christmas. See Sinbad battle the saber-toothed tiger, guardian of the secret shrine. Hi, I'm Rianne Greatbanks, and you are? Daniel Greatbanks. We're going to talk a little bit today about Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, aren't we? Yeah. Now, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger was one of the films that Dan had on his Christmas list for Father Christmas to bring him this year. He brought it, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. As I grew up in the... 1980s, watching Clash of the Titans, Jason and the Argonauts, usually on at Christmas time, and that's uh, Jason and the Argonauts got Dan really into Ray Harryhausen films, and he started watching trailers of other films on on YouTube, and one that caught your eye was Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, wasn't it? Come here, Dan. Can you do your trailer? Enter from the list. favourite characters from the film? Can you tell me? The sword reading ghouls. Yeah. The actual the ghouls, the militon, the saber tiger battling troglodyte, and the giganticus and troglodyte outside them for hornets. Mm-hmm. And different kind of all other kinds of creatures. Yeah, it's a real adventure story, isn't it? Yeah? Is that what you like best about it? The fact that it's got so much, so many characters in it? Dan? <laughs> it's very difficult doing an interview with a four-year-old. <laughs> um, what? Yeah, there's another film that you like, eh? You like all of Ray Harryhausen's films, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. Back to where legends first began, where fantasy is real and the land of the lost is rediscovered. That's fabulous. I should say to people, don't feel that you have to say always very positive things because 
in terms of the Sinbad trilogy, some people favour one Sinbad film more than others, or they have specific comments where they feel maybe not as excited about one film or another. You know, keep it PG, keep it nice. But we do want to hear, you know, a general feedback, as it were. We're not going to change the films if you don't like them, but we are interested in what you have to say. And both of those films have been restored in high definition and we'll be receiving special screenings this year where myself and Connor will be giving presentations showing behind-the-scenes images and perhaps some never-be-seen-before photographs. Both of them remastered in high definition. In the case of 20 Million Miles to Earth, a black-and-white film, it's now in colour. And in the case of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, for the first time has a stereo soundtrack, which is something that it never had when it was originally released. So, very exciting. Yes, absolutely. And we'll be doing our full um, one-hour-long specials for both of those films throughout the year. So if you have any questions or thoughts or reviews for those shows, you can send them to us. Uh, We'll be exploring behind-the-scenes anecdotes and memories of these films. Um, One special screening of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger that we can announce is at the Edinburgh Film Festival this coming July. It's going to be shown on the big screen in St Andrew's Square completely for free. Um, This is a similar screening of which took place for 1 million years BC last year and it was a huge success. So we anticipate another tropical summer in Edinburgh. So if you're on holiday in Scotland, be sure to keep an eye out for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger on the big screen. Well, I'll get my uh, my beach and my towel and my Factor 50 ready for those fabulous tropical <laughs> Scottish summers. Um, how can people get in touch and, and leave this sort of audio message? Well, you can send your audio recording to harryhausen100 at gmail.com and you can either use an online recording piece of software or your own recording software at home, whichever you find easiest and Feel free to get in touch if you have any questions about the sort of more technical aspects of it because with modern computers and smartphones, everybody can record um, at their own convenience and it's a great way of getting your voice and getting your opinions onto the Ray Harryhausen podcast. That's great. And do tell us your name. We will we'll read your names out so that uh, if you say the wrong thing, the fandom can come after you. Um, but if you don't want to be identified, that's fine. You're, you're more than welcome just to leave a comment. And you can do it the old-fashioned way as well with uh, with email, Twitter and Facebook. Now, I'm, I'm very excited because you've got um, one of my favourite persons with you today, Mr. Alan Friswell. So um, if, if I let you dive in, Connor, and we find out what exactly Connor and uh, Alan have been working on uh, this week. Excellent. Well, Alan's been here working very hard. Um, his production line of models to restore and repair... Uh, has no end and he has been it's always magical to watch him at work. Alan this week you've been working on a very special set of models from First Men in the Moon you've been working on three selenites at the same time because they are all all three of them are on the same platform and honestly I don't know how you do it, it looks like such delicate work restoring one of these models is obviously very hard but restoring three at the same time is a work of genius. Can you tell us how you've managed this? Um, <clears throat> well, basically, um, through self-hypnosis, I'm only joking, uh, really, it's uh, very complicated. It's a question of concentrating on one model at one time, really, and forgetting that there are two others. Uh, the only concession to that is you have to avoid touching the other two models in case you uh, accidentally damage them. Uh, that's actually one of the, the, the big problems that i faced. Uh, in terms of the complexity of the work, yeah, it's 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 three things at once because I found it was actually more uh, expedient, shall we say, to actually repair all the limbs of the three models first before you go to the heads and you go to the the wings and things like that of that sort. Um, I repaired all three heads at the same time because it was the most complicated uh, part of the model because the sections had to be resculpted and uh, it was I admit it was a relief when I when I got to the point of painting them when the actual sculpting work was over because it was very complicated. Now we have 10 selenites in the collection, uh, 9 of which were, were used in First Men in the Moon and the 10th of which is a prototype. Now you have now restored 6 of those models including the prototype. What is it in particular about the selenites that makes them so delicate? Because we'll post before and after pictures with this show, people can see 
that they were in an incredibly fragile state and the restoration work that you've carried out throughout the last week has been badly needed. Well, the problem with any uh, stop-motion figure which is very thin or slender is that uh, in the manipulation process during the animation, uh, the model will suffer more uh, seriously than a model which, like say a brontosaurus for example, which has very thick limbs and the rubber is much more robust around the armature. Uh, a thin creature will uh, deteriorate more quickly because of course the rubber being that much thinner, the atmospheric pressure and the heat and light will get to it with much more uh, rapidity than a, a thicker model would. The exception is the skeletons of course because they're not actually cast from foam latex or latex rubber, they're actually a combination of latex and cotton wool and the cotton wool fibres are actually holding the rubber together incredibly effectively. Uh, I predict that the, the skeletons probably will never deteriorate, at least not for many many years. So uh, uh, the skeletons are fine but uh, a model which is actually cast in rubber uh, which has very thin limbs, will probably be the first to deteriorate, which is why the cell are in such a terrible state. And I just mentioned the fact that we have a prototype design for the Selenites, which Ray crafted in the early 1960s, before the final design of these iconic creatures was decided upon. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that design? Because we were discussing it earlier. So it's an interesting design, um, and I think it was vetoed for potentially being too frightening for a young audience. Well, it, it, my, my first impression of it when I saw it years ago, it actually looks like a kind of a B-movie monster. It does have that kind of like 1950s science fiction film appearance. It's got this kind of strange flat head and a stomach that looks like it's inside out, which is quite, quite macabre looking actually. I mean, it would have been very effective as a creature, but uh, it does look more like something that belongs in perhaps a horror movie or a, one of the 1950s monster movies than in a, an H.G. Wells film. So perhaps Ray thought that that was the problem with it. That was the reason why it was actually rejected in favour of the more uh, insect-like creatures that we, we, we ended up with, which are more uh, in tune with the, the descriptions by H.G. Wells himself. Now, uh, that, now that the uh, six Selenite models have been restored... That's your work for that particular film done. Tomorrow you're going to be working on one of the dinosaurs from the Valley of Guanji, the Pteranodon, and you've you've assessed this piece. Um, are you looking forward to working on one of Ray's flying dinosaurs? Very much, very much. From what I've seen of the model, it looks like it's in very, very good condition anyway. Uh, the rubber of the wings seems to be intact. If, if it's as good, if the whole model is as good as the part that I looked at, it'd be quite remarkable that one of Ray's creatures has survived uh, so very effectively down 47 years, isn't it, since Guanji. So uh, it'll be very interesting to actually look at it and see if it does need uh, much repair or if it's uh, a minimal kind of amount of work that's needed. Now we have a list for you as, as long as our arm <laughs> uh, of models that we'd like you to look at and potentially restore. Is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to assessing and restoring or anything that you may think will be extra challenging? I, I don't think there's anything that, that can't be repaired. There are going to be models that are much more complicated than ours. I think the large Kraken will probably be compli complicated because of the size of the model and probably the amount of repair work needed. Carly, I think from the last time if I remember, she was in quite a bad state. It'd be interesting to have a look at her and see what needs to be done. Uh, It'd be interesting to look at the Minotaur because I believe that's one of the creatures that was on, on the list. It'd be nice to, to repair him and the ghouls, of course, because that's uh, Simbani Ida Tiger. I know we'll be talking about that later. It's one of, a favourite of mine because it was one of the first films that I was sort of actually able to see one of Ray's new films in the cinema. So any models from that would be of great interest to me. Well, that brings us on quite nicely to my next question because we've heard from fans from around the globe but uh, as you've just said, you're a huge fan of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your history of the film? Because you saw it on the big screen, but you also saw the trailers for it and the publicity before it came out. And, uh, you know, it sounds like a really happy childhood memory. Well, as, as a young kid, I mean, I, I knew the film was uh, being made because I used to read uh, monster magazines like House of Hammer and film uh, magazines of that sort. And they had various uh, articles about the, the film, interviews of Ray. And uh, I had the paperback book that was published a couple of months before the film was actually released. And so I'd kind of read the story. I knew the, the general plot line. Uh, 
And I'd, I'd gone to see a film, like a children's film, and the, the, the trailers come on, and I didn't expect it. I didn't know when the film was going to be released. I didn't know what time of year it was going to be out. And the trailers came on, and it was a trailer for Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, and it just knocked me out because the magical thing about it was I actually see, saw scenes on the screen that I recognised from the book. And it was like seeing the book come to life. I knew the story and I could actually see these things happening on the screen. The Minotaur trying to get into the pyramid and the, the trog fighting of the tiger. And I'd read about all this in the paperback. And so that was quite miraculous actually seeing stuff come to life. It was an incredible experience really. Perhaps it's better to actually read the stories of some of these things before you see sections of the film because it's actually, it's like it's actually come to life. It's amazing. And so that was almost like as inspirational the trailer as seeing the film itself because... It, Obviously, trailers are put together with very, very punchy, very quick editing, and it's meant to make a great impression. If you're a kid, and it's something of that sort that you're so deeply into, uh, it, it did affect me quite seriously for several days, actually. It's, it's interesting, Alan, the point that you make, because we're, we're of a similar similar age, okay, similar generation. Connor is a little bit younger, I think, to, be, to put it nicely. Um, it, you're right, it, it was very difficult to, to find any advance kind of information and any advanced sort of um, press or PR, you know, because it all had to be paid for in those days. There was no social media, no internet, of course, as everyone famously talks about. Where did you find out outside of, you know, the radio or TV Times, which which magazines, if any, were you able to, to access? Well, at the time, I mean, I was... I was read. Uh, I was. I was very lucky. My parents didn't see anything wrong with me reading monster magazines, for which I'll, I'll always be grateful. And so that was mainly the the source of information. In Britain, we had the Dead Skins magazine, House of Hammer, and, uh, and the Starburst. Of course, didn't come along until a couple of years afterwards. But House of Hammer was principally the main magazine that would publish uh, material about upcoming uh, British films or films that were going to be released in Britain, at least. And it was in there mainly that Sinbad and the Either Tiger. At, the, at one point, they, I believe it was called Sinbad at the World's End, uh, about a year before release, as I, in one magazine I read. And uh, House of Hammer was the first one that had a, a, an actual article which described some of the creatures and some of the locations that the film uh, would take place in. And then there was actually an interview with Ray, which... Uh, this was about a, a month before the film's release, and that had they didn't have any any pictures from Sinbad, but he had uh, the usual pictures from Mysterious Island, Wumbling Years BC. But he had a little bit of information about Sinbad, and that was very uh, fascinating. But as you say, back then it was only through uh, published works that you could actually get any information about upcoming films, and so uh, we're kind of spoiled nowadays, of course, with the uh, proliferation of. Uh, computer information and everything else but but back then yes it was quite difficult to access any information at all i think you're right you know the starburst magazines that i saved up my my dinner lunch money to buy i've still got them and when i had them back in those days they were quite expensive you keep them flat you wouldn't swap them with anyone you'd keep them you know in pristine condition i'm sure you're the same alan i've got them all in plastic bags Ah, it's one better than me. I need to get those. I, I used to have some of those bags. I've, I've lost, lost the bags. bags. Well, you'll be fascinated, Alan, by who's up next. And we're going we're gonna to chat with Alan a bit later on um, in the episode. But next up is, is, is a man called uh, Richard Hollis, who's actually one of the sort of the founding writers for many a sort of a, a, a genre magazine in this country, as Alan was mentioning, um, including uh, Starburst magazine, which was the, the UK equivalent of Starlog. And I caught up with um, with Richard Hollis because he has a very, very special announcement and uh, something that uh, is going to be a big project for us here at the Foundation and something which um, all of you listening can perhaps be involved with. So um, take it away, Richard Hollis. Join Sinbad, the greatest of all adventurers, in his biggest adventure of all. Richard, if I can start by asking you a bit about your relationship with this whole sort of fantasy and film genre, because you're you're quite the veteran, aren't you? The veteran writer. Yes, I've been writing for sort of specialist magazines, as well as science fiction and horror magazines since the late seventies. And um, some people might know my name from Starburst magazine because I wrote for that for many many years. Uh, but I also uh, wrote for Starlog and magazines like Cinema and Idols. Um, but I also worked for the BBC for a long time uh, as a freelancer, uh, talking about films, reviewing films for that were on television and at the cinema. Uh, and I also wrote a number of documentaries for BBC Radio 2 
including one about 1950 science fiction films, which Joanna Lumley narrated for me, and she did a lovely job. I did a one on Doctor Who's 30th anniversary. Um, and also, for anybody who might be interested in other than science fiction, um, documentaries about Lauren Hardy as well, and the Walt Disney Company. Because another side of my interest is animation, and uh, I have worked with the Disney organization on a number of projects in the past, including three books about the Disney company, one which is a studio story, which looks at a complete filmography of the company. As a kid, I grew up buying all those wonderful magazines like Famous Monsters of Filmland uh, and Monster World and um, Monster Times and Castle Frankenstein. And, um, so I would you know, I raid my local news agents to find these, like I'm sure a lot of people will, will know what that's like, um, and build up quite a collection of them. I got very interested in science fiction and fantasy movies. They weren't a lot on television at that time, but I used to try and catch them at the cinema. And it was rather wonderful when they did start showing them on TV. And I realised that exactly what the, the, the films I'd been wanting to see for so long were just as good as I'd hoped they were going to be. Um, so I've got a, a close association with science fiction, fantasy, animation. And, um, and, and, I'm, that was, and that's been going like that for about the last 50 years. <laughs> Now, interestingly, of course, you've you've met Ray Harryhausen, and you know you're yes. a very good friend to him and Diana, and you've been to the house many a time. But Sam, if I can take you back to that very first meeting, where did you first meet Ray? Yes, I was familiar with, with Ray, of course, because I loved his films. The first Ray Harryhausen film I saw at the cinema when I was very very young was Mysterious Island, and I saw it on its first release, uh, and it, it just hooked me completely. Um, and I started trying to find out who this guy was. I don't think I could even pronounce his name when I first found it in Famous Monsters of Filmland. Uh, Harryhausen? What, how, how someone say that? But I, I just loved everything about Ray's movies and I followed them all religiously through until I started working as a journalist, but never had the opportunity to meet him. Um, and then, fortunately, the both of us were kind of thrust together, if you like, uh, as jury members for the British Film Institute Awards in 1988. We found ourselves serving on the same jury. And from the moment I met Ray, he he just was exactly as I imagined he would be. He was... He was so easygoing, so keen and enthusiastic and loved the fact that people liked his movies and his work. Um, he was a charming, charming man, um, a delight to meet. And of course, I naturally got my film Fantasy Scrapbook, which was the first book that he did about his work, signed straight away. And from there, we became firm friends. I visited him at his home many times. In fact, my wife and I had uh, dinner with him and his wife, Diana, who's a lovely lady. And we met them on numerous occasions. I would interview Ray for radio, magazines. In fact, I would find any excuse to find a way to go around and see Ray again because it was just a treat to visit him um, and listen to him talking about the industry, about the films he made, about special effects, and also just to show us the models that he had, all those fabulous artefacts that he looked after and kept for so long that are now part of the foundation. And I think it's great that I had that opportunity to do that. In fact, the, the, one of the last times I saw him, I took my niece, who um, has just finished her degree in paleontology. I took her to uh, to meet Ray Harryhausen, and he was as always delightful. And he was happy to show her all the models that he had in the studio at that time. And so she had the she had the chance to see the things that she that I'd been going on about for years uh, that she'd always wanted to see. And of course, we have a Ray Harryhausen connection between us because I first met you when I was a, a film student. We do, in the late 80s. Yes, that's quite right. Yes, yes, uh, yes. You were budding filmmaker at that time, and uh, I was interviewing Ray at the Greenwich Cinema in South London, and we were showing your film uh, beforehand, uh, which your, your documentary on Ray Harryhausen. Uh, so it was a great opportunity for two fans, as we were, uh, to get a chance to talk and also to talk to a great audience, because you may remember that we had a fabulous audience for that screening, a very appreciative audience. And Ray, as you know, was marvellous too. He brought along some of his models in a suitcase that he used to carry them around in and got them out and displayed them for us. Uh, and it was a fantastic event. I innocently walked one Saturday afternoon into the Grommel's Chinese Cinema to see a film called King Kong. And when I came out, I haven't been the same since. Well, I was really worried because I spent the week with um, some help from my parents, my mum especially, going to local libraries, the Forbidden Planets uh, science fiction shop in central London, with these small little black and white flyers that I'd created saying, please come and see my film. And talk about. <laughs> because I was terrified that no one was going to turn up because you suddenly think, you know, all the films have been on TV, you know, the, my documentary short is only 15 minutes, why would people want to come and spend their time and their money commercially going to a cinema for a talk 
that will certainly interest me and, and yourself. But would there be anyone else? Well, know? I know what you. I know. I know the feeling because obviously we know that Ray Ray's last film was nineteen eighty one. I mean, it's been a long time since he made his last movie, and by the time we did the event that you're you're talking about, uh, this was some years on from that. Uh, Ray was in retirement, uh, although he was never. He was so popular. In fact, I think he was even busier in retirement almost than when he was making movies. He was traveling the world, visiting people, and visiting conventions and exhibitions. And that was going down so well. And, and in a way, I guess, it's because this was an opportunity for people to meet up with Ray, to see him talking about his films. And you realise there were an awful lot of film buffs out there who were desperate to find out more about how his movies worked. Uh, your film remarkably did that by showing how, how this technique was achieved and also showed some very rare footage of Ray, which was great, him sketching dinosaurs at the Natural History Museum, part of the research and the work he used to put into these movies. And my opportunity to meet him and talk to him again on stage, as I said, something I did with him on a number of occasions, which was almost an enjoyable uh, time because he was so easygoing and casual to discuss his films with. So, yes, we were lucky. It was part of a major event, and we both came out of that. Um, d d bigger r r fans of Ray, I think, than we were where we started, yeah. So it's interesting all these years later, where we neither of us have aged today, of course. No, um, no and, I like uh, to think so. And oh. interestingly, Tom Baker is a funny link, because, of course, you've you've worked with the Doctor Who programme, with, you know, things you've written about, and, of course, the documentaries you've produced. And, of course, Tom Baker landed the role of Doctor Who after appearing in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Mm. So I rather cheekily asked him to do a free narration for my my little student shorts and I think it's, it brings a certain gravitas to the film so it's been re-scanned in high definition now and shown at different talks and festivals and you came along to the um, uh, cinema museum last year I think you saw the film yes that's right when you were presenting your film again and discussing it and talking about Ray's career and uh, I had an opportunity to sit in the audience there and watch that um, thoroughly enjoyed it again um, the, the, the great thing is in a way, almost yours was the first because there have been so many documentaries on Ray and um, it's nice to think that they picked up on where you started because there's some really superb documentaries about Ray have been on television, on the DVDs and of course there was Ray Harryhausen Special Effects Titan the latest movie that was released about Ray that was actually in the cinemas um, so it was all part and parcel, wasn't it of keeping Ray's legacy alive, I think And that brings us nicely up to date now with what we're doing now because we have... Um well, a very exciting announcement to make. So I will leave it to you, Richard, to tell us and uh, our listeners what the very exciting announcement is because we want to try and involve the people who listen and who are fans of Ray Harryhausen in, in this next project. So uh, the floor is yours. Yes, the marvellous thing is that we've had an opportunity now to produce a book which is looking at Ray Harryhausen's film posters. Uh, this has never been done before. There have been books on Ray Harryhausen, yes, and some of them have included pictures from some of those posters. But we're now going to do a book that concentrates just on that, a book that looks at all the posters that's, that, that accompanied the movies he made from Mighty Joe Young in 1949 right up to Clash of the Titans in 1981. Now, fortunately, through the Foundation, under your good auspices and your trustees, and uh, we have a fabulous collection of posters to, 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 to pull on. For the book so we've got some wonderful graphic images that we can use however we know there are a number of Harryhausen fans out there in the world a lot of them in fact who've probably got collections of their own and we would very much like to see whether anybody would like to send us images of their posters that they might like to see included in the book um, we're particularly looking for we're taking in fact we're interested in anything that you might have but we're particularly looking for Ray Harryhausen's films of the 1950s I'm talking about films like The Beast and 20,000 Fathoms It Came From Beneath the Sea Earth First The Flying Saucers 20 Million Miles to Earth I can imagine you all smiling as I say the names these are the films that we're particularly keen to get more and more material on particularly foreign posters so overseas fans of Ray Harryhausen we'd be very much like to know what you've got and if you're willing to, um, to let us have a picture of those posters we can arrange something with you about how we can get them scanned and what we will do um, and I know I'm sure you'd be delighted about this we would like to put your name in the book if you lend us a poster and we use it we will put that down as come from your collection so it's your opportunity to see your name in the first book of its type a book about the film posters of Ray Harryhausen so their name will be shared alongside the poster on on the foot of that page. So it won't be kind of hidden in the back. In Not at all. No, no, no. The, uh, the, the the poster, uh, some of the posters will take up four pages, um, depending on their size, because obviously posters, as people know, who collect posters, they come in all shapes and sizes, landscape, vertical, inserts, cards, all sorts of things. So what we'll do is we'll put your name under that poster on that page. So if, you, if you've got some really nice material and you want to lend us quite a few posters and we can use them then we will certainly see that your name is throughout the book it's a great credit to have on a book which I think will be certainly tremendous and one that Ray would have been very proud to have seen I'm sure 
And I think we can also say that we're going to send a book to each person who successfully has a poster reproduced in the book. So really, it's it's quite it's a double win, isn't it? You get your name on the book, you get a free book. That's right. Yes, exactly. Um, you get a prize at the end of it. So you lend us your poster, and uh, and you get a book for for, for that for that loan. Um, and as the book will be out in uh, 2018, we have quite some time in order to assemble what we want. There's no panic. Um, it gives you plenty of chance to dig around through the boxes, pull out the stuff from the attic, have a good old turf through what you have. Basically, just to see if you have any material that you think might be of use to us. And any film posters, as I said, particularly if you've got French or Spanish, Italian, German, posters from the Netherlands, Japanese, it doesn't matter what it is. We're interested. Uh, American and, and British as well. Uh, we, don't want to, we don't want to neglect our American and British Harryhausen fans. But whatever you have, let us know what it is and, uh, and we will do our utmost to get it in the book and you'll get a copy of the book, as John said, as a, as a gift. That's fabulous. Now listen to the end of this podcast to hear the dedicated email address that we've set up for this very special project where you can send through your inquiries, but in particular the posters. So initially if you have a poster that you think Richard would be interested for in his book, you could send us a low res image of it you could take with your phone um, just so that we can see whether it's one we've already got or if it's something new and exciting that we can include. Then we can discuss the conversation about uh, either you scanning it yourself or sending it to us to be scanned. But we're just interested in low res images to start with because, you know, we uh, we don't want to break the internet, do we? <laughs> no, I'm sure there's going to be a huge panic now. <laughs> I think lots and lots of people are going to be writing in. Now, the other interesting thing about the book, from our point of view as the Ray Harryhausen Foundation, the money that's going to be raised as um, the book is going to be sold because it's a commercial, it's a commercial enterprise. Um, the share that's coming to the Harryhausen Foundation will go towards the restoration and the general maintenance of the Creature Collection and the Foundation itself. So, you know, every book you buy will help bring Talos back to life, will make sure that the, the snakes in Medusa's hair stay supple and, and radiant. So really, there's, there's several reasons to be cheerful. Yes, it's a good idea. I mean, I think anybody who's been um, following carefully the, the Foundation's um, pages on Facebook or on Twitter or wherever will see that um, the interesting part about it is that the Foundation is working very hard to, to maintain Ray's legacy. All those fabulous um, models, toys, uh, posters, stills, uh, all those drawings and paintings that he kept, uh, and he looked after all those years while he was working on his films, are now uh, in, 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 a, in one collection, and they do need to be looked after for the future, for future generations to enjoy them. So this is a great opportunity for any money that comes in from projects, worthwhile projects like there, like the poster book, will be useful because they will go towards helping these the restoration of these uh, of these artifacts particularly the models uh, because sadly the models a lot of the models have been, uh, have been falling apart and some some effort has been spent on these over the past um, few years to actually get those back into uh, prime position so so yes that's one one great advantage i think of doing a project like this so really if somebody contributes and contacts us they'll be they'll be saving the creatures for future generations yes that's right yes you the, the hydra will have you to thank and the children of the Hydra's teeth as well. Absolutely. <laughs> we wouldn't want them coming after us. Um, as, a, as a kind of a side note, in terms of posters, if people are thinking about um, the alternative to cinema posters, because, of course, cinema was one way raised films were released. Of course, there was novelizations, there was VHS, Betamax, Video 2000, Laser Vision, Video Disc, which is different to Laser Disc, of course. Um, and there's some exhibition posters for the Museum of the Moving Image, of course, in the early 90s and more recent exhibitions around the world. Can we expect to see any of these in your new book? What would be nice if we what we'd like to do, because the book will be broken down into the 16 movies we're discussing. So the book will be broken down into 16 chapters, if you like, each chapter looking at an individual movie. But we will have um, we will have a sort of introduction to each one of those chapters. And basically what the idea will be is that while we'll concentrate on the movie posters themselves, which 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 are important because they reflect the periods in which these films were made, um, what we will do is, at the same time is we will include into our introductions smaller images, smaller visuals of some of the other kind of material that you speak of. Certainly it would be great to talk about some of the um, the video covers that came out from when Ray's films first started coming out on videotape, some of the Blu-ray covers. Uh, there's some very nice material, that be artwork being produced for those. 
Um, and of course, there's a lot of difference in the, the ones that produce for overseas. There are campaigns for some of the films, uh, announcements about movies coming. Uh, these would be interesting images to include. The Beast and 20,000 Fathoms, for example, um, some very nice materials produced in America to t as a teaser to say that the film was coming. And this happened with a number of race movies. If you have that kind of material as well, let us know you've got it, because we might very much be interested in putting that into the book as well. It's very exciting, isn't it? It is excellent. Yes. And people often ask me about poster books, and you know, when you see them, they're they're often big selling books. You know, James Bond and the Star Wars mm. franchise. It is surprising that um, this hasn't happened up until now. Yes, it is. I I think um, I think it's interesting that as I said that a number of books have used posters from Ray's films because they're such iconic images in them in themselves, um, and and of course they do. You know, the creatures, if the creatures appear on the posters, they're just fascinating to look at. So I think they were important from that point of view. But but movie poster books are now the in thing, and there are a lot, as you say, of books being produced with movie posters in. So this is a great opportunity to to um, redress that balance with Ray's books because there have been lots of books that Ray himself has been involved with about the special effects and how these movies were made. Uh, let's find out a little bit more now about how they were promoted and how the campaigns were set up to actually get these films into the cinema where we all saw them and where we all enjoyed them. <laughs> And of course, the posters are very different. If you were to flick through the James Bond poster book, which is a personal favourite of mine and a really big seller, it's very similar in that you have the lead character often in a tuxedo, um, looking quite dominant with a gun and some sort of action around him. Whereas with Ray's, you know, to go from one genre to another almost, um, one fantasy time to another, they really are quite an eclectic uh, range of, of, of images. Well they are and of course the thing with Ray's posters are that, um, that his creatures are his stars um, yes we do see um, we do see uh, the Argonauts on the posters for Jason the Argonauts um, but we, but if you look at a lot of the posters that the stars that come out of Guanji from the from the Valley of Guanji um, even if Rachel Welch uh, who we all adore is the star of the One Million Years BC movie and of the posters herself look very closely you'll see the pterodactyl in the background on some of the posters you'll see the fight between the Ceratosaurus and the Triceratops all these things are there Ray Ray's creatures were very much to the forefront of his film posters and that's and they were the stars of his films so it's nice to sort of see them on the posters and to appreciate that. And of course you're saying about these images have now become iconic in their own right. Of course the Raquel Welsh poster appeared in the Shawshank Redemption and you know clips of Ray's films appear in lots of other filmmakers films so really he's, he's more than just a, uh, a filmmaker from the past isn't he? I mean he has a, a real resonance for, for modern day filmmakers. Well that can be certainly seen by the number of filmmakers today who have great admiration for his work. Um, the people like George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, John Landis, Joe Dante, all these people, all their movies are influenced by the work of people like Ray Harryhausen. And uh, and I think that's a, the, probably the greatest tribute, really, that Ray could... I think the lovely thing is that when he spoke to Ray, he was always so amazed that these guys today, these great directors in Hollywood today, um, th have such affection for his movies. He was such a humble uh, man in his own way. Um, and I think he was quite surprised that they took so much interest. These films were produced by lots of companies, lots of different directors... Uh, and yet they're Ray Harryhausen movies. This is what we remember them for, and it's his name that lives on. Now, I can't let you go today without asking you two specific questions about two films which have anniversaries this year. So for 2017, we have the 60th anniversary of 20 Million Miles to Earth, and we have the 40th anniversary of Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. Both very different films, almost you know miles apart in terms of where they fit on the Harryhausen timeline and quite unique posters as well. I mean, you've you've looked at the poster artwork for both films. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? We've just been looking here at what you've collated for uh, 20 Million Miles to Earth. Well, 20 Million Miles to Earth, yeah, that's, that's sort of raised science fiction sort of um, theme, if you like. So obviously, um, you know, the stars of the film appear on the posters, but it's really the Emir itself, the creature from Venus, that uh, makes the most impact. Um, and uh, the, the film is um, the film has some of Ray's some brilliant uh, character analysis in his in his creation of the Emir in Twenty Million Miles to Earth. It's one of of all the science fiction films he did, and he did others like Earth vs the Flying Saucers um, and uh, It First Men in the Moon, which is actually one of my personal favourites. I have to add, um, Twenty Million Miles to Earth stands alone as one of I think one of people's favourites. I think the Emir is one of the creatures that most Harryhausen fans have got the most affection for when you look back at the fifties movies. Simba and the Eye of the Tiger 
Tiger, the, the, the other hand, of course, is a, a movie that was rooted in the mythology and the stories of mythology that Ray so enjoyed, the the, the legends of, of, of Greece and Rome that, that he enjoyed, and also of, of Oriental legend. And Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger has a very different feel to it. It's a, a very different look to it. The, the posters are more montage in, the, in, in their appearance. Uh, more, they show more of the creatures, more of the characters. Um, two totally different movies. Yes, both fantasies, but totally different films and handled by Ray in a very different way. Um, and the poster art, which as this book will show, does signify just how different they were. The poster art for Eye of the Tiger is absolutely beautiful mm. and it is reminiscent of James Bond in the sort of the... Uh, the uh, sort of late 60s, early 70s, and going for that. It fits that style, style doesn't it? Beautiful, that that trend, it? yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Richard Hollis, thank you very much. We will catch up with you again later this year. Yes, we'll keep some progress report on how the book is going, and please get those posters in. <laughs> Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. So, there you have it. You know, you can be part of uh, the Ray Harryhausen legacy by having your name in one of Ray's books with maybe a favourite poster that's in your collection that's not in the Foundation collection. Uh, Connor, how can they be in touch? You're going to have so many people getting in touch with you. You're going to, I'm imagining a scene um, from Polar Express where the postman has all those letters and you're having to kind of to pull them up a snowy cliff or something. Um, how, how can they get in touch with their posters? We've set up a special email address for this project. You can contact us at posters at rayharryhausen.org.uk and... You can send us posters that you think are rare or just posters from your collection that you think are particularly interesting because it's been fascinating to look at posters from around the world. Uh, I'd never quite appreciated just how different they could be. I think most of us have seen the the UK and US designs, uh, the, the most kind of common ones. But posters from Japan are, are fascinating and posters from behind the Iron Curtain, especially places like Poland and, and elsewhere, very unique takes on the imagery from Ray Harryhausen's work. Um, one that springs to mind from a topic we covered last year was Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which we uh, we presented a screening of in Germany. And the poster for that film is quite interesting. It's expressionist. It's very dark. And um, this possibly reflects the mood in the country after World War Two and in, in the 1950s in Germany. Very different from the kind of vibrant, action-packed posters that were released in the US and the UK. So, as I say, please contact us, posters at rayharryhausen.org.uk. I'm looking forward to seeing everyone's posters collections from around the world. Now, posters have changed a lot because regionally, in the early days, in the 40s and 50s, regionally you could have a variant poster, as it's called. But as studios became more and more controlling, of course, we get to the 70s and 80s and you really couldn't do anything without studio approval, so there are very few variants to find. But the, there are some interesting ones for Clash of the Titans, and as Richard said, he, he named the titles that he's looking for in particular, but feel free to send in, as Connor says, the ones that you have. Um, Alan, I'd like to ask you, because of course you're not just a, a, just a sculptor, you're also a, a, an artist as well with, with hand-drawn images. When, when you were growing up, how important was it for you to see you know, the poster on the back of a magazine for a Harryhausen film, whether it was Clash or, or Eye of the Tiger? Eye of the Tiger has a beautiful, beautiful one-sheet uh, poster. I mean, how much were they a draw for you as well? Because you'd sometimes maybe only have the poster to look at before you go and see the film. Well, this, I suppose, is representative of the time because everything was so rare. Uh, today, of course, if you want to watch a film, you can just put it on DVD. But back then you had to wait for it to come on television or to be released or re-released in the cinema. And things like posters and artwork were, again, one of the only ways you could access any kind of information, particularly as to what was in the film and the kind of creatures and the, the, the sort of events that might take place. I remember uh, I managed to see One Million Years BC on a re-release and they took out a huge advert in the, in the newspaper. And I kept that, I kept the advert, I kept looking at it as a very young child because it was so fascinating. It was so rare to see something like that. Uh, the poster for Eye of the Tiger, of course, was wonderful. There were two designs. I think there was an American design and there was the British one that, that I prefer, I must say. And uh, of course, all of Ray's posters, uh, I know he had a great interest in the publicity side of things because he'd learned from King Kong, obviously, that showmanship is the, uh, the main point of the entertainment value of these, these films. And 
as a consequence, I think Ray had a, a certain input into the, the way that the posters would look. At least he had some kind of uh, say in the matter. And I think as a result of that, that's why so many of his posters are probably some of the best of their, of their kind. I mean, they certainly represent a, a time when uh, the publicity for films of this sort was much more, uh, not say outrageous, but certainly more uh, trying to communicate with the audience. And so, yes, I, I, I love those posters. I love the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad's poster as well. And First Men in the Moon, I like. I like that uh, very much too. They're very much of their time, aren't they? You can you can track the lineage of of um, screen printing, of um, you know Madison Avenue, if you like that whole sort of um, timeline of of advertising in the UK and in the US. Because sometimes UK advertisers were slightly ahead of the US curve and so on. So it'd be fascinating to to see that. Now we're we're obviously a very visual medium. We're talking about film and posters, but of course the podcast is audio only. Um, and we're going to rectify that, of course, because this week you've been uh, you've turned yourself into a little Steven Spielberg, Connor, haven't you? What, what's been happening? I saw a, a preview video this afternoon of something you'd shot. I have, because although it's obviously fascinating to hear what Alan's been doing, we thought it'd be better if people could see what he was doing. So we'll be recording a short video for every model that Alan works on. Uh, you'll be able to see the condition of the model before restoration, and then some of the processes that Alan uses, if he doesn't mind giving some of his secrets away, that is, because, you know, every magician likes to keep a certain number of tricks up his sleeve. But um, we'll really be exploring the reasons for why a model may have deteriorated over time, or conversely, why certain parts of it may be in better condition than others. And then how Alan tackles every model, because every model is slightly different. And um, we'll be looking at some of his... Uh, some of his techniques, and then obviously the final restored model in all of its glory. And uh, we challenge you to look at archival images of these models when they were first created, and then look at Alan's finished piece and try and spot any differences because they are always spot on. They're, there's there's nothing different about them. They're they're restored to their former glory, and they always look fantastic. And I posted some pictures on our Facebook and Twitter last month of the model for Guanji, which was in quite poor condition and it's now back to how it looked back in 1969 and it's perfect and we're so proud to share these pictures of the incredible work that Alan's carried out. It's been really interesting to hear your recollections of buying Starburst magazine back in the early 1980s. This month's edition, the January edition of Starburst, contains an interview with myself and John that was undertaken at the Manchester Animation Festival last November. And uh, Robert Martin from Starburst magazine came to take some pictures of us. We were there along with Medusa and Calabos and the Magic Eye, all from Clash of the Titans. He spoke to us a little about the work of the Foundation and our plans for the future. So this is a a very interesting three-page article on the work that we're carrying out with some fantastic pictures of of Ray's models. But it's very appropriate that we're in this month's edition of Starburst because on the front cover is Kong, the new Kong film, and they've dedicated a lot of space to the new Kong film, but then a retrospective on the older King Kong films which of course were Ray Harryhausen's favourites, uh, an article on the history of stop-motion animation and a short article celebrating the life of Forrest J. Ackerman, who of course was a close friend of Ray's and for whom we dedicated a short bonus podcast on the anniversary of his 100th birthday last November. So check out Starburst magazine this month, uh, as well as the interview with ourselves. There is a lot for Ray Harryhausen fans to sink their teeth into and as we said it's the longest running magazine of genre entertainment, cult entertainment, sci-fi, horror and fantasy in the UK and it's a fantastic read. Well if there was a Starburst badge like a blue piece of one I am sure they would give it to you for that lovely uh, lovely soliloquy there uh, Connor. No that's fabulous and as we started we're going to bookend this nicely we started with Annie Fest talking about uh, what we did last year 
this year um, we're working with uh, the Barbican in London for a major exhibition they're having with science fiction that we're a part of and it's those creatures that Alan is working towards restoring for that particular exhibition so as we, as we close uh, this evening uh, Connor we did an interview of course last year in one of the episodes um, a, a special dedicated episode to the Barbican's a journey into the unknown isn't it the science fiction um, can you give us a bit of an update on that before we finish off today Yes, uh, the exhibition is called Into the Unknown, A Journey Through Science Fiction and it's going to be on at the Barbican Centre in London from the 3rd of June this year until the 1st of September and this is going to be a massive exhibition of science fiction work from throughout the genre's history so they have everything from Jules Verne manuscripts right through to props and material from today's modern science fiction blockbusters and of course, a big part of that and something which links classic science fiction literature with modern day blockbusters is of course Ray Harryhausen's work. So a lot of the models that we've been discussing, the Selenites from First Men in the Moon, uh, the Flying Saucers from Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, and quite a few models that you may not expect to see at a science fiction exhibition will be on display. Uh, they have four key areas which they're looking to explore. Extraordinary Voyages, Space Odysseys, Brave New Worlds and Final Frontiers and of course I'm sure everybody can think of a Ray Harryhausen film that fits under each of those categories and so without giving away too much we we look forward to seeing people attend the show and see Ray's fantastic pieces from the science fiction genre in person. Excellent. Well, we've got a very busy year ahead. Um, I'll say goodbye to you chaps now and uh, maybe leave you with a closing thought from Ray Harryhausen himself um, on uh, on his work and how he viewed it. The simple process of walking into a cinema one day changed my life completely. I grew fascinated with the fact that you could put on the screen uh, inanimate objects uh, such as uh, stop-motion dinosaurs and give the illusion that they are alive. And that has always fascinated me, the, uh, the art of movement, the art of, of uh, uh, bringing things to life. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered charity number SC001419 2017. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.